Hey, this is Dan Wunderlich from Defining Grace, and welcome to Art of the Sermon, a show for preachers, teachers, and communicators. Today is episode 13, and I get to bring you a conversation with a longtime friend and colleague of mine, Derek Scott III. Derek is a campus minister serving multiple colleges and universities around the Northeast Florida area, including in Jacksonville and St. Augustine. In addition to being an amazing pastor, preacher, and worship leader, Derek chose after a season of discernment to intentionally remain a lay person serving in ministry. So I hope you'll enjoy his unique story and perspective on ministry. Here's my conversation with Derek Scott III. Well, I am so excited to have as a guest on the podcast today, Derek Scott III. Derek, you are the executive director at CCW, also known as Campus to City Wesley Foundation, serving quite a bit of the Northeast Florida region. How are you doing today, Derek? I am doing fantastic, man. How are you doing, Dan? I'm great. I am excited to have you on this podcast. You are uh, one of my friends and also sort of semi-mentors. I've always looked up to you during my time in campus ministry, seeing what you're doing. Um, And why don't we kick it off by uh, sharing with folks a little bit about yourself as well as your various ministries and their contexts. So I am the director of Campus to City Wesley Foundation. We represent the United Methodist Church uh, here up in Northeast Florida which is uh, kind of centered around Jacksonville, but um, you know goes kind of outside of that. And so we are doing active ministry at the University of North Florida and Jacksonville University. And those two are in Jacksonville. But then also we started providing campus ministry to Flagler College, which is about 30, 45 minutes south of Jacksonville in St. Augustine. So we are a multi-campus ministry, one ministry doing ministry on three campuses and uh, it, it's it's a lot of fun, and uh, it's we do get sleep, not a lot of it, but we do get it. And um, but there's a great team. You know, we've got staff and student leaders and interns. And as isolating as ministry can be, I don't feel very isolated all too often because I've got just a great team of folks, um, both you know employees and volunteers. Um, who, you know, we do this together and our, our ministry moves by friendship, which is a really beautiful gift. And um, so we're just trying to be faithful with this moment that we have to serve and reach college students. Well, one of the things that I have always admired about you, Derek, other than just your absolute amount of energy and positivity, you're an explosion of joy and love in every room that you walk into. But you are one of the best preachers that I've heard, and not just best young preachers, but best preachers hands down that I've heard. Um, and so I am I'm really excited to get to talk to you a little bit about preaching and, and your call to ministry. And, and let's begin with sort of a very general question. What are your philosophies or approaches to preaching in general? And maybe if you have a sort of a personal mission statement or any guiding principles you have when you preach, what might they be? So I want to make sure I say at the beginning of my response uh, that I am a layperson. I've not been to seminary and I'm not ordained. So, you know, my approach to preaching is, is coming from a place of I, I do feel inadequate. And not to say that because people go to seminary, they're definitely adequate. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But I, there's this sort of background sense that I haven't been trained, I haven't sat in um, the theological academic world for an extended period of time. So I do feel, I feel a growing curve. And so I, I try to be um, very intentional about my reading. I actually do better with lectures than reading. 
Um, and so I listened to a lot of lectures um, as well. But I grew up in a tradition, not United Methodist. Um, I became United Methodist when I was 17. But I grew up in a tradition of church that was very intentional about making sure that from an early age, I started exploring and even memorizing scripture. So a great deal of my preaching starts with the scripture that I've been living in for some texts for 30 years almost, mm. um, and just continuously living there, taking more scripture in, meditating on scripture, processing it, looking at it from different perspectives, allowing my theological education, though it's, it's much more sort of on the ground, handmade in a sense, but taking my theological education and pushing it up against what I've lived in in regard to scripture. The next thing I think about when I think about preaching then is what is what do I think God is already saying to our students? Hmm. I, I don't think that I can say something new necessarily. Um, and I don't even know if saying something new is always the best thing. <laughs> right, but, right. But my goal is, and this is my prayer always, God, just help me to echo what you're already saying to these students. Um, help me to articulate it so that they can pick it up um, better. Help me to say it in a way that makes them lean into what you're already saying to them. I deeply believe that God is always speaking to his people. You know, not everybody believes that and not everybody feels that. But I come out of that assumption that God is always speaking on God's terms to God's people. And so my job as a communicator is to lean into what God's already saying and to just echo that. So that's probably my best answer as far as like my philosophy behind preaching. Well, let me ask you, how do you try to stay on top of discerning what God is speaking to your students? Is that usually just personal reflection and prayer and, and seeking direction, or does it involve, I'm, I'm sure that you are constantly having conversations with your students. Yeah, it's in my one-on-one conversations. I carve out um, probably the most amount of time in my schedule for one-on-one meetings with our students. Um, and I, I ask them two specific questions um, that are actually John Wesley questions. Mm. Um, the first question is, how's your soul? Um, and it, it's, it's the first question I always ask. I even ask my staff and I ask my friends, um, how's your soul? And, uh, and I just wait for the answer. And no one's ever really ready for the question, even though they know that's the question <laughs> that's coming. And I have students who just don't like the question. <laughs> And and they always give me a face. Um, yeah. But that question, um, it helps me, one, be open to them speaking their their truth, little T truth, if I could say it that way. Yeah. Their truth. And also, um, it gives them a chance to say things that maybe they haven't been able to say to other people. And even sometimes things that they have a hard time saying back to God. So that's usually the first question. And, I, and I'm always listening for those answers and processing those answers. The second question um, is even harder. What's the last thing you heard God say to you? Mm. And I ask them that question, and especially if it's the first time they've heard it, I give them sort of the reason why. I don't really expect an answer. It's it's more (laughs) that I am pushing an assumption in front of them. Mm. Again, that God is always speaking to God's people. And it is not that God is not talking, that it is more about us listening and putting ourselves in a position to listen. And so when I ask them that question, I am asking them, are they putting themselves in a position, whether that be 
being in worship regularly or being in scripture consistently or quieting their hearts long enough to hear God speak that still small voice or being open with the people that they trust spiritually and, you know, so many other ways, being out in nature for some people and, you know, being in service for others, you know, working on their craft and seeing what they hear as they work out their craft. But I, I'm asking them that question to see if they're even in a position to hear God speak. And those two questions become super key. One, where the student is at the moment. Mm. And so then I ask the question, what has God biblically said to people that have also been in that place? And again, that's where the word of God dwelling in me and me always being in scripture sort of supports and resources what I do with that information. And then whatever they say they heard, is there scripture that supports that? Or is there tradition that supports that? And I don't normally correct it in the meeting because it's not really what the meeting's for. Right. But then when I get into teaching and preaching, that's really what I'm speaking to. I'm speaking to how they tell me they are and what God has said, what God has done, what has happened in scripture with other people who have been there. And then here's what you seem to think God's saying. Here's the scripture and here's the theology that may support or may inform or possibly challenge what you feel like you're hearing. And so the one-on-one meetings really inform the preaching. And I can tell when my preaching is suffering because I'm not having any one-on-one meetings or as <laughs> yeah, many. Yeah, That's when my preaching really suffers. And, and the folks who are closest to me can tell you that as well. When my messages are not working, it's because I am no longer listening to the people that I have been given to shepherd and serve. So those two things work hand in hand. And I don't write a lot of, and I don't bring a lot of general, can sort of be pulled off the shelf kind of messages, because that's just not how I'm wired. Most mm-hmm. of my messages are based on what I'm seeing in our community on the ground and really just trying to speak to that. That's great. And, you know, I've heard it said that that likely the best preacher in the world is someone that that the vast majority of us will never hear. And I think that's probably because the the efficacy of of preaching is so often contextual. And so mm-hmm. what what you say to your community, if you were to podcast your sermons and someone across the country listen to it, they'll probably get something out of it because you're an amazing communicator and also God translates things. But I think yeah. that the the true probably merit of of what you're doing is the change you're making in the lives of the students that are there with you in the room. Dan, so I'll be honest with you. If if you ask me what are my top favorite things to do in ministry, preaching does not hit that list at all. Really? Um, I am a nervous wreck before I preach, <laughs> and I'm an introvert in real life. And I know people don't believe me when I say it, and that's fine. But I'm an introvert in real life. So when I'm around people, it makes me even more stressed. So there's some weeks that I literally come in as late as I can so that I don't have to talk to people right before I preach. Yeah. Because I'm just so nervous and so afraid that I'm not going to hit all the points and get it right. And then on the other side of the message, I'm freaking out. Was that right, Jesus? Was that what you wanted me to say, (laughs) Jesus? And I I freak out about that. And usually within five minutes of the gathering ending, I send a text to my staff members. Okay, I need feedback. Be brutal. And um, preaching is so not my favorite thing to do. I know it's, it's a part of my call. 
And so you don't, your call doesn't always include things you like to do. Um, exactly. And, yeah. And I'm grateful that God blesses it and that, that people get things out of it. But my favorite thing to do in ministry is to sit with a student over coffee for an hour and just listen and respond, you know, with a couple of stories and a couple of scriptures and a thought. <laughs> but to spend the majority of that time just listening to where they are, that is my favorite thing to do. If all I had to do, if I could only do that in ministry, oh my gosh. Well, as, as you mentioned, you are in full-time vocational ministry, but you are a lay minister, meaning that you're not ordained. However, a while back, you did go through a season where you were considering a path to ordination, and you ultimately chose to pursue lay ministry. And I say it that way because I, I get the sense that it was an intentional choice. It wasn't just that you that you chose not to be ordained, but rather you are constantly, actively, and intentionally choosing to be a minister as a lay person. Uh, and mm. and how, however much of that story you're comfortable telling us, would you share with us a little bit about that process? Yeah. You know, like I said, I, I, I grew up in a, a beautiful church. And I have an amazing family that our lives always centered around church. Almost everything that we did and every plan that we made sort of assumed that but we had to be back on Sunday or we've got to make sure that we, you know, get done in time to do Wednesday night stuff or whatever. And I loved growing up that way. But it obviously sort of puts you in a, in a, I don't know, a mindset that this is your life and this is what you've been sort of raised to do. So it just seemed that I was supposed to get ordained and I was supposed to work in church for the rest of my life. And that just seemed to make sense based on everything that had happened, you know, growing up. And so I, I engaged the ordination process because of my past and my nurturing, but then also the conference um, and individuals within the conference were always so supportive of me and of my gifts. And I think that when I filled out my candidacy form, I didn't put you know, elder deacon, local pastor, but someone wrote it in for me. Someone wrote in elder <laughs> for me. And I, I didn't take offense to that. I was more, you, you appreciate my gifts. And these gifts, I guess, look like an elder. So I engaged that process out of obedience, but I never actually got a clear sort of push from the spirit to get ordained. It just seemed to me that that was the obvious next step for me. And it was in the fifth week of our candidacy small group that we started talking about the different options for ordination, elder, deacon, local pastor. And for whatever reason, I asked a question about, so what's the role of the layperson? Partly out of just needing to be educated. And then some of it was just simply, there weren't a lot of prominent lay leaders in front of me. So I asked about that, and, and Melissa Pisco, who is my candidacy mentor, she gave some expression to that. And then it was like everybody's voice got muted, and I could have sworn that I heard the Spirit of God say, Derek, I want you to be a leader in the church, but I want you to be in the laity. Mm. Now I knew what that meant. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if I had heard that two years before that point, I wouldn't have even had an idea of what that meant. But I knew that that meant a lot of things. And so I kind of sat on that for a few weeks before I even told anybody else about it. Um, because that just, that changed the whole story. I knew what it meant to be 
an ordained minister and what leadership as an ordained minister in my denomination looked like. I did not really have a clear picture of what leadership as a non-ordained person looked like in our denomination. When I finally told you know, my candidacy mentors and folks that I trusted, I think there was about two months that no one knew what to say to me. <laughs> right. And it's probably just my perception, you know, and it was probably appointment season time. There's probably a whole lot of things going on. When I sent my little email, hey, I don't think God wants me to be an ordained minister. But actually pretty quickly, Russ Graves, who is the conference lay leader, pulled me in and got me involved in some things. Some other folks got me involved in some things. And I'll be honest with you, I've never been busier broadly in church leadership. You know, I'm you know, obviously busy in my little footprint of CCW, but then my, my responsibilities and my leadership and, and how I participate in the life of our church, you know, goes beyond my campus ministry. And I mean, I've, I, I'm, I, I get to do a lot of really cool things and I'm so grateful for it. And I'm grateful to be involved in leadership, but it is as a layperson, And so that brings a very different perspective of how I interact with church. And so that's a learning curve, but it's also so really, it's really special. And I will say we have plenty of listeners who are United Methodists because that's sort of how we started, but we've also got lots of listeners, um, amazingly from all around the world who are not necessarily United Methodist. So I'll say that in a mainline denomination like the United Methodist Church, that places a lot of uh, responsibility uh, and authority upon clergy. Lay leadership can sometimes sound like, we think you're you're pretty good at this, but why don't you sit on the bench until when the pastor's on vacation, and then we'll have you step in, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, again, I come from a tradition, uh, the church I grew up in, you know, I actually started participating in ministry definitely by 11. You could make an argument age nine, but if I'm really honest, they started throwing stuff at me at age four. Um, <laughs> wow. Yeah, and that's the world I grew up in. So yeah, if I'm really starting to look back, like it completely makes sense to me that I'd still be heavily involved in church life as a non-ordained person. And I think that that, you know, if there's any renewal that's coming to the UMC, I think that that's some of it, that reclaiming of that Wesleyan idea of the clergy and the laity together in ministry that there are gifts that the clergy bring, and then there are gifts that the laity bring. And we are strongest when we are acknowledging and making room for both. Mm. I think the challenge for the laity is to allow the Spirit of God to do everything that the Spirit of God wants to do in them, and not to say that because I'm not ordained, God doesn't want me to fill in the blank. I, I think that it actually becomes a really beautiful thing when and and you know, I speak very humbly of what I'm about to say. When a person like me displays gifts that some people would say, "Oh, that's a gifting for an ordained person," and then the spirit says, "But I don't want them to be ordained. I want them to not enter into that part of the church world because we need laity preachers as much as we need clergy accountants. Sure, and we we need laity missionaries as much as we need." clergy persons that know how to get on the ground and mop a floor. We need both images, I think, for the church to be all that it's supposed to be. I, I, I do think that we have assumed that there are certain gifts that only clergy people have in certain 
roles that only laity people can hold. And I, I think the spirit loves to come in and just mess that thing up. And I, I think that the problem with the system sometimes is that we have created a system that doesn't let the spirit mess that up. And I'm sure that that we have folks in our audience who are bivocational pastors and bivocational ministers, and mm-hmm. and and they're just nodding their head, going, "Yep, Derek, Dan, get on our train. You got it. This is this <laughs> is where we've been, and this is where we're going." And, and you've you've spoken to this a little bit, but I I wanted to specifically ask you for for the lay people in our audience who may feel a call to ministry but not ordination, or to the folks that may be pursuing ordination but feel out of place. Do you have any words of encouragement for for people like that? So so in 2 Timothy, Paul says something to this young guy. He tells him, it's in that first chapter, Timothy, fan into flame the gift of God that's inside of you. And I love those words. I lean in on those words. Paul does not say, hey, Timothy, get up close to some people that are going to fan the flame for you. Mm. Paul tells Timothy, you do it. You fan into flame the gift that's in you. Yes, the Spirit of God put it there. Yes, we have confirmed it by the laying of hands. And yes, it, it, it's, it comes from the heritage that you're a part of, your mom and your grandmother. But, but Timothy, this is the gift that God has given you. And if you're waiting on somebody else, Derek, revised standard version now, but if you're waiting <laughs> on somebody else to do that fanning, you're, you are missing out on what God is asking of you to do. You fan that gift. And I, so my encouragement would be that wherever people are, whatever age they are, they need to own the fact that God has gifted them, that in Jesus we have been given gifts that, um, that make the church what it's supposed to be and that serve the world in our day. And yes, we can run for mentors and we can run for training and we can look to people to help us. But ultimately, when we get to heaven, God's going to ask us what we did with the gift that God gave us. Mm. And that's not about ordination. That's about taking responsibility for the gift that's inside of you. And so I would say to people who are listening to this podcast to know there's a gift inside of them, fan into flame that gift, cultivate it, work it, hone in on it, sign up for the training. Don't wait for someone to pay for it. Go get the book. Go look at the pot, listen to the podcast or watch the YouTube clip. Do what you got to do because at the end of the day, it's the gift that God gave you. And uh, Brian Houston, who's a pastor, the pastor, the global pastor of Hillsong Church, he said back in 1998, he said something that has stuck with me all this time God never wastes prepared people. Mm. And um, I am just convinced that. Often the thing that is keeping us from really living the God dream is that we are waiting on somebody else to do what God's like, no, you do it. Man, that's that's powerful. And I'll tell you too, as an ordained person, I hear that as well. There's so many of us that sort of cross that last hurdle um, and then you end up in in ministry and after just like every job after you've been there for a while and after you do it you sort of hit your routine you hit your rhythm and so the the challenge to continue to fan that flame find new things find new expressions mm. um it's it's that's a, that's a powerful message for everybody thank you Derek I really appreciate it oh well 
Praise God, man. Yeah. Praise God. Well, as we mentioned, you're a college campus minister, and you have been for quite some time. And so while we've got you as sort of a semi-expert on millennials and, and young adults, certainly, do you have any tips or pieces of advice for, for churches that want to make connections? I, I think one of the difficult things about the millennials, um, and you know, this is not just from a church perspective, I think it's just in general— across all of the sectors in the conversation, sociological, cultural, even political, is that gone are the days of one collective voice for this generation. And what we have now are niche voices um, where one person speaks not for all millennials, but for a particular group of millennials. Mm. And I would even go as far as to say even that one person doesn't really articulate it for that little bitty group. But even within the little bitty group, there's a particular uniqueness within that one person that doesn't match the other people in the group. And I think what that means for us as ministers is that the idea that we could create a ministry that fits everybody and that attracts everybody, it's probably not not going to work. Yeah, One yeah. size fits all ministry doesn't work which sucks because we don't have all the time in the world. And, you know, if you're trying to reach 10 millennials, you don't have time to create 10 different ministry paths necessarily. Right. So I think that's the big challenge. But I think also it's a beautiful opportunity to then try to think about how do we not create a one-size-fits-all ministry, but how do we really um, think about serving individual millennials? And to be happy with that, to be comfortable with that. I think it's beautiful that there are ministries that are reaching thousands of students. I I would wonder um, how effective they are at reaching those thousands of students, how often they reach those thousands of students. You know, some people look at the passion movement and they're like, man, passion's just so awesome. And they've you know, got 60,000 students, you know, bumping into the Georgia Dome. And I would remind them they do that once well, Georgia Dome once every three years. Yeah. Um, and this will be the last one coming up in 2017. They don't do that week in and week out. They don't create that environment, you know, multiple times a month even. Those, a lot of those large ministries aren't doing necessarily on-the-ground everyday ministry. And what you'll find, what I find with our students, that even students that don't come to our campus ministry weekly, they still reach out for me to be pastored and to be mentored and again, I think what it is is that one-size-fits-all ministry doesn't work, and so we have to be happy and comfortable with serving the one student or the two students. And I do believe that as we are faithful with the one, the two, that God sends us more. But it's not God sends us more, and what works for the one, two works for the three and the four. We still have to be very intentional to serve the one student. And I think really what it calls for, Dan, is flexibility when it comes to reaching millennials that it's not going to be one thing that's going to work, that we're going to have to be okay with being pulled in multiple directions if we really want to reach millennials. And so then I guess the real question is, do we really want to? Yeah. We yeah. really want to serve them, or do we just want to make sure that our, our local congregations have another decade of existence. Right. Do we just want to be able to check off that we've got this many young people in our ministry? If that's all we really want, then I don't know if it I don't know if it's going to happen. If we really want to serve millennials, we're going to have to be okay with small ministry 
that serves a smaller amount of individuals and then bring in other people along if we want to serve more than that. Mm. Well, and and let me ask you this. I I think this is something that I've seen before in churches is that they like the idea of young people as a group, but until they get to know a young person, you know, they like the idea of college students being in worship with them. But if they don't, if they don't actually know or even really like the particular students that are there, it's it's not going to serve the bigger purpose of of being the church. If all I'm wanting to do is check off how many students I have in the room, that is really annoying. And I, I think that we can build ministry that demands young adults to be on their best behavior always. And I just say that that's not real ministry. I, I Real ministry is my students being able to be who they are They don't know what they're doing with their life. And so I don't expect them to know what they're doing with their life. And no, they don't always show up on time. (laughs) And and no, they don't always do it exactly the way that I want them to. They don't always invite their friends. And they don't always show up and do what they said they were going to do. I'm not building a corporation. I am pastoring and building young leaders for the future of the church and for the world. And I'm committed to every single one of them on their terms where they are right now. And I think that we need more of that kind of ministry. There'll always be ministries that draw a crowd. But I think what millennials really want is for a room that they can sit in and somebody they can be snarky with and know that they're still going to be there on the other side of the snark. Well, I know that uh, you got to run here in a little bit. So I have a set of questions that I like to ask all our guests. We can sort of play them rapid fire. Our first general question is, can you think of maybe one of the more difficult sermons you've had to prepare or preach, or do you have a favorite experience from your preaching and teaching career? I can be honest and say that I think every sermon is my most difficult sermon. <laughs> yeah. And I, and again, I just so badly want to bring a message that's echoing what God's saying to our students. And I, I don't just want to, I don't just want to talk, but the problem with people like me who are very, you know, in my head and I get amped up about theological things and philosophical things and thinking is that I often just get lost there. And I forget that I got to get back on the ground to where my students are. And again, that's when I'm not having enough one-on-one meeting, right. that I'm lost in some theological or philosophical sort of thought is I'm, I'm just not listening to my people. So as far as hard sermons, the hard sermons are the sermons that yeah, I, I want to teach it, but there's no reason to teach it. Mm, mm-hmm. um, there's no, I mean, yeah, there's a good reason to teach it because it's Bible or it's theological or it'll help them one day, but it's just not. Those are the hard sermons. And those are the sermons that I have to scrap. And I'm much quicker to scrap those now than I used to be mm. um, because I'm just more, I'm more given to the idea of serving my students than just giving them a cool theological idea that they can wrestle with. As far as favorite, I love teaching through an entire book of the Bible and being able to have the space to do that. In campus ministry, because of the rhythm of campuses, we don't often get to do that. We don't often get to draw this long arc of walking step by step through an entire book or even large section of scripture. But that's what I really love to do. And, and sometimes that's super helpful for our students. Sometimes it's not. Who have been some of the most impactful preachers and or communicators in your life? I got to just 
give props to like the entire Hillsong family. Yeah. I can't name just one of them, like all of them. I love the Hillsong family because um, even though like, you know, I don't necessarily agree with everything. I don't agree with anybody's everything for that <laughs> <Right>. matter. <laughs> I don't agree with everything that comes out of my own mouth. <laughs> right? Say that out loud. Yes. I appreciate that Hillsong is so intentional about the diversity of voices that they have. They're all in their brand and I get that. But even within their brand, they just make room for the voices of men and women, for the voices of really, really practical people and really, really biblical people. Folks who like to get out there in the world and just do stuff. And then folks who love the house of God and just want to see the house of God built up really big. So I really appreciate that. And I get a lot from them. Tim Keller. I think Tim Keller is everybody's best friend um, or everybody's <laughs> preacher. Because yeah. I feel like regardless of where you are theologically, Tim Keller has a way of speaking to you. I really appreciate his messages, and I, I glean a lot from him. A.J. Sherrill, who's at Trinity Grace Church up in uh, New York City as well, I listen to him and get a lot from him. You know, as a campus minister, obviously, at some point, Louis Giglio, I think, comes across your radar screen. Right, exactly. So I can appreciate him. Beth Moore, I appreciate her and her deep dive into Scripture as well and, and how she just gets so excited about the text. Um, those are some of the voices that uh, I tend. Oh, and T.D. Jakes. I grew up on T.D. Jakes. So there's <laughs> always a little bit of T.D. inside of me. I appreciate his ability to get people into the text. Yeah. Um, he has a, an ability to get, I mean, you can smell what David was smelling Yeah. Um, yeah. when he preaches out of Samuel. I mean, you just, he's so great at that. And um, I, I appreciate that and look up to him for that. So mm. Do you have any book recommendations, maybe any that have shaped your preaching or teaching or just ones that that have been meaningful for you? Anything by N.T. Wright, just go get it. And it doesn't matter what the name of it is, just go get it and read all of it and read it again. Anything by Henry Nouwen, he's just, he's phenomenal. Henry knows how to speak directly to the soul. Mm. Um, those, those are probably the two voices that I, I have spent a great deal of time listening to and reading. I'll be honest, I, I, I'm... I love lectures more than anything else. So the, my diversity as far as voices really come in to the lectures. So Dr. Sandra Richter comes to mind as someone that I, I really love listening to. Oh, gosh, I can't even believe Diana Butler Bass. Yes. You know, yeah. Just, yeah, she's, she's awesome. And she's challenging. I, and I can say that she challenges so many of the assumptions I've grown up with. And I can appreciate it and at the same time kind of say, I don't know, Diana, I don't know if I'm 100% with you on that one. But you know what? You're giving me something to really, really dig into. And man, I want to sit under your teaching for a year. So listening to the liturgist, I particularly love it when Rachel Held Evans is on the liturgist. Yes. I just feel like she brings something to their conversation that's pretty awesome. But the liturgists in general, Science Mike and Michael Gunger, just, you know, great voices get me thinking, you know, really make me ask some 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 beautiful questions about faith and life. And those are just some names there, I think. No, definitely. That's that's a that's a great list. And then our last question is if there are folks out there in our audience that want to get in touch and say hi or maybe have questions for you, what would be the best way for them to follow what you're doing? The best way? Uh, <laughs> there's no great way of getting in touch with me, unfortunately. <laughs> um, probably the best way is to find me on Twitter. 
Twitter is one of those platforms that um, I'm always sort of going back to, especially in my downtime. And I don't mind being interrupted in the downtime, but it's probably the best way if, um, you know, they're not living in Jacksonville or, you know, hanging out in some meeting that I'm in. So the Twitter account um, is at DLaRuth3, D for my first name, LaRuth, which is my middle name, L-U-R-U-T-H-3. So the whole thing would be at D-L-U-R-U-T-H-3, D-LaRuth3 on Twitter. That's probably the best way to connect with me. They can also email me, Derek.LaRuth, that's Derek, D-E-R-R-I-C-K, dot L-U-R-U-T-H at gmail.com. And those are probably the two ways to probably get in touch with me. And if you don't get an answer, I don't mean anything by it. It's just really busy. Yeah. So it just, I tell all my friends, if you love me, interrupt me and keep interrupting me. And I don't take offense to it. Just keep pushing. And eventually, I'll send a response like a human being. So. Sounds good. Well, Derek, thank you so much for your time, all your wisdom, all your stories. Uh, it, it means a ton that you would take time to be with us today. Dude, I'm just, uh, I love you, Dan, and I love what you're doing, and I'm just excited about the future of your ministry, because I really do think that you are filling a vacuum of creative leadership, and I'm grateful that you've got this season to really focus on that, and so I'm praying that God would just continue to bless you and continue to expand your opportunities for influence and to just uh, offer resources to people. You're a rock star, man, and I love you. Thanks, dude. Thank you so much for joining me for episode 13 of Art of the Sermon. You can find show notes, including links to some of the things that we talked about at artofthesermon.com. As always, I would love to hear what you think about the show, and I want your input to be a part of the conversation. So you can connect with me through Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, all at username Art of the Sermon. If you'd like to support the show, I would encourage you to subscribe to the podcast through iTunes or your favorite podcast app so that new episodes are downloaded as soon as they're live. And of course, in addition to sharing the show with your friends, the best way to help us out is to leave a review in the iTunes store. This lets iTunes know that you care about the show and want other people to find it. Our next episode is scheduled to go live on April 21st, 2016. And so in just two weeks, we'll reflect together on our conversation with Derek Scott III. Thank you again so much for joining me, and I'll catch you next time on Art of the Sermon.